Good morning, Christ Church. Happy New Year. It is, uh, it is good to begin a year together with you all. And I just want to say, I am so grateful to be serving here as your lead pastor. And I'm just so grateful to begin a new year with you all. So um, really, really excited about this year. So uh, we're going to begin this year by starting a new short three-week series where we're going to be talking a little bit together about the vision that we believe God has given to us kind of to lean into into this next year. Now, there is a broad, clear vision that Jesus has given to his church. He has called us to make disciples of all the nations. And so our clear mandate as a church is to go and to make disciples. But sometimes when you enter into a new year, it's good to ask, are there some particular areas that we need to lean into this year? Are there some core priorities that we need to give some attention to? And so I want to share with you three core priorities over the next three weeks that we believe God is calling us to lean into into this next year. Now, if, uh, if you're new to our church family, maybe you've been here for a week or three weeks or three months, this is a really good Sunday for you to be with us because you're going to be seeing some of the, the things that, that we are to focus on as a church. And of course, if you've been around here for a while, it is good for you as well to know like, well, what are some things that we need to lean into this year? And so the three core priorities that we're going to be talking about beginning this week and over the next three weeks are these. First is Christian community. In other words, our life together. Uh, second, uh, widows and orphans. Uh, we, we believe, of course, God has called us to care for the least of these. In fact, James says that pure and undefiled religion is this, is that you care for widows and orphans in their distress. And then the third area is uh, Jesus, which... That's pretty basic, right? Like, why wouldn't you be focused on Jesus? Uh, but we're going to be talking about each one of these aspects uh, that we're going to be leaning into this next year over the next few weeks. But I want to begin this morning by talking to you about the first of the three. And today, specifically, I want to talk to you about both the challenge and gift of Christian community. I want to talk to you today about both the challenge as well as gift of Christian community. Now, I'm sure that all of you have experienced Christian community maybe as both a challenge and a gift. And some of you may be more challenged than gift, others more gift than challenge, and a lot of us kind of an intermixture of both, but that's what we're going to be talking about today. But I wanted to begin our discussion by um, sharing with you some insights gained from an essay that was written in the New York Times a while back by author John Tierney. And the title of the essay is Picky, Picky, Picky. And in the essay, John Tierney tries to figure out the answer to a question that he says so many New Yorkers will ask themselves this Valentine's Day. And the question is, why am I going home alone again tonight? And he proposes the answer is that New Yorkers are peculiarly picky. He says, New York, you know, as a general rule, draws insanely ambitious people from across the country, and they are all determined to get more for themselves than they deserve. 
And he said during all of his years uh, living alone, he always knew that his own requirements were, they, they, they weren't too much to ask. He said they were perfectly reasonable. He said, all I wanted, quote, was a nice novelist astronaut with a background in fashion modeling. <laughs> and he suggests that New Yorkers are afflicted with what he called the flaw-o-matic. He describes the flaw-o-matic as, quote, an inner voice, a little worrying device inside the brain that instantly spots a fatal flaw in any potential mate. And he gave real-life examples that he has heard from his friends. Sure, he's a partner in the law firm, but it's small and he wears those short black socks. <laughs> How can I take him seriously after seeing Road Less Traveled on his bookshelf? And then in one ridiculous example, he said that a man said that he saw her, she opened the door and she looked fantastic, beautiful face, great hair, well-dressed, but then she turned around and she had dirty elbows. <laughs> that, and he said, that was that. And Turney writes, my first instinct was to suggest that there might be some way for the two of them to work it out. Maybe some couples therapy and a little soap and water. <laughs> but then I realized it didn't matter. He'd just find something else. Now, as I read the article, I, I found myself thinking that surely the attitude of being picky, picky, picky is not unique to New Yorkers. And the flaw-o-matic is not, it's not unique to people who are looking for a date. And in my experience, and I think in my own heart, I have found myself as I approach the local church, and I have found, of course, many, many church-going people to be very picky, picky, picky themselves. And I have found that the, the flaw-o-matic is alive and well in a lot of Christian communities. And we can find ourselves easily spotting the flaws in this church and the music and uh, the community and why didn't they talk to me and they weren't nice enough or, or any number of things. We can easily spot flaws and we can find ourselves being picky, picky, picky. And so what I want to do today is, is I want to just pause and I want us to bring that dilemma into dialogue with uh, a text in the Bible that actually has very little to do it's a little do explicitly with Christian community, but in, in my experience, it speaks to me about the challenge and gift of Christian community about as well as any other passage of scripture I know. And it, it comes from uh, this story. In fact, it's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament from Exodus chapter 16 about um, bread from heaven. And in this story, kind of in the context where it picks up, Israel has just been released from their harsh slavery in Egypt, and they are on their way from Egypt to the promised land, and they are traveling through the rough and barren wilderness uh, on the road to Sinai. And look what it says. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. By the way, that phrase, the wilderness of sin, uh, it gets a little confusing to us because we're like, was it the wilderness where they sinned against God? And it was, but um, this is actually short for kind of a phrase in which the, the wilderness was described, kind of short for Sinai, the wilderness that was close to, you know, anyway. It was between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So in chapter 14 and 15, 
We read about Israel rescued and delivered by the strong hand of God. He parts the Red Sea. They walk through on dry land, and they get to the other side, and they sing, and they dance, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. But now, uh, the, the euphoria of the Exodus quickly yields to the harsh realities of life in the desert. And look what happens next. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now notice they, they misremember the past. They re-narrate, they glorify, they exaggerate the past, and then they catastrophize the present. You know, as they imagine life in Egypt, what's the first thing that comes to mind? It's meat pots. And what is a meat pot anyway? Well, I mean, I think of a Dutch oven. You know, you brown the brisket, you will season it, and then you cook it low and slow for six, eight hours, and it comes out succulent and delicious and juicy. Come, come on. And um, meat pots, you know, they're, they're just imagining the succulent meat that they ate and the bread to the full. And, um, and, and, and what are they forgetting? They were slaves. Under the oppressive hand of Egypt, it is always easy to re-narrate the past and to imagine it far different than it actually was. And what else is easy is to exaggerate the crisis of the present moment. In the present, you know, we are about ready to starve to death, you know, and you brought us here to die. Now, we can't blame them because where are they after all? Well, they're in the, the wilderness of sin. And when I hear wilderness, I, I think, you know, trees and the San Gabriel Mountains and such. But in the, the wilderness here, it was a barren wasteland. You know, I showed this to Natalie and Ryan this morning. They're like, that's home. That's Albuquerque, you know. <laughs> but the wilderness is a barren place. It is the place where life-sustaining resources are threadbare, and you wonder where you're gonna get your next meal. And so they are terrified. We're gonna die in the wilderness. At least we had food in Egypt. And where are we going to find food? And, and now their need in the wilderness is gonna be met by the generous gift and the gracious provision of God that will come, interestingly, in the form of bread from heaven. Look at the text. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion or every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And then on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. And then skip down to verse nine, look what it says. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, before it was the Lord telling Moses, now Moses tells Aaron, go tell them the news. You know, God has heard, God has seen, he knows your need. Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, 
I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight, you shall eat meat, and in the morning, you shall be filled with bread. They remember the meat pots. They remember the bread to the full. Look, I'm going to bring them meat, and I'm going to bring them bread, and then you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, the bulk of the chapter focuses on the bread from heaven, and I want to uh, draw your attention to the bread from heaven. Look at what it says. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. That was the meat. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Now, notice their question. They say, what is it? In Hebrew, that question is two words. It is man who. Man means what, and who is this? Literally, it's what, this? (laughs) You know, it's like, what is this? What is this stuff? And what is it? And that's gonna be important in just a minute because skip down to verse 31, look what it says. Now, the house of Israel called its name. What what did they call the name of this flake-like, delicious stuff that was on the ground? They called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. So they called the name of the flaky stuff uh, manna, or what, or what is it? And um, Moses said, well, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout all your generations. And as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. And the people of Israel ate manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. So, you know, um, this word manna, it is essentially that word manhu. It means what is it? And so they named the stuff that is confusing to them, that nourishes them in the wilderness. What is it? You know, they name it manna. Now, we stand back... And, you know, of course, there's a lot of lessons to be drawn from this story. The bread from heaven theme takes on greater and greater freight as you read through the New Testament. You read about the ministry of Jesus and his feeding of the 5,000, and Jesus is teaching about himself as bread from heaven. Manna has all kinds of layers and theological depth and meaning. But one, one core and basic principle, one basic lesson that we are meant to draw from the story about manna from heaven is simply this. God can be relied upon to provide. God can be relied upon to provide. You know, in the wilderness where life-sustaining resource is threadbare, you can trust God to provide. That in your wilderness, in the space and season in your life, where the former joy of salvation has yielded to the harsh realities of life in the desert, to a sick body, to a broken home, to a struggling marriage, to fraught relationships, to financial hardships, you can trust God to provide in the wilderness. 
In the wilderness and in the manna of story, we see before our very eyes that we can trust in the gracious provision and the generous gift of God to sustain our life in the wilderness. Amen? Now, it's instructive, though, to talk about this peculiar provision from God. What, what did God give that sustained them in the wilderness? It was manna. And I want to just draw back, and I want to make three simple observations about manna. And the first is this. Manna is strange. Manna is strange. You know, some scholars believe that the substance called manna was actually the secretion of a bug that lived parasitically on local tamarisk trees. And because the sap of these trees was so low in nitrogen, the, the bugs would have to eat like crazy to get proper nutrition, and they would excrete these white, yellowish balls of liquid that would fall to the ground and dry quickly. And it was light, flaky, sweet, and incredibly nutritious. It would appear in the morning, and by the end of the day, it would be ruined. And actually, uh, the nomadic Bedouin people to live in the region to this day have eaten a substance that they call manna, and it is precisely secreted bug juice. Now, whether that's what manna is or not, I don't know. But even if it's not, you'll notice in the story that manna is just really strange. And when they see it, it, it appears on the ground, and they're, they're like, man who? Like, what, what is it? Because it's not clear it's even edible, let alone the bread that God has given us from heaven to eat. Moses has to tell him, like, this, this is the bread that God has given you because on their own, they may not have known. And so the first observation is simply this. The provision of God in the wilderness is strange. If they had not been told by Moses that it is bread from God, they may have died of starvation. Their corpses strewn across a desert covered in food. So number one, manna is strange. Number two, manna is not promised land food. Look at verse 35 again, uh, or 36. It says, the people of Israel ate manna 40 years till they came to the habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Joshua, later in the book of Joshua, just before they enter into the promised land, Joshua states this, and the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Cana that year. So as soon as they get into the promised land, they no longer have manna. And make no mistake about it, the food of the promised land is far, far better. You know, in Deuteronomy 8, Moses reminds them, the Lord God is bringing you into a good land, a land filled with brooks and streams and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates and olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. In the promised land, bread is not scarce. In the promised land, there is an abundance of food. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, but not in the wilderness. In the wilderness, they have manna. So number two, manna is not the bread of the promised land. But number three, manna will sustain you in the wilderness. You know, every day except Sabbath, when they woke up, they would find food. And the food they would find would be enough. 
the gracious provision, the generous gift of God would be exactly what they need to get them through the wilderness and ultimately to the promised land. And so those are the three observations. Manna is strange. Manna is not the bread of the promised land, but it will sustain you in the wilderness. Now, you're like, what, what are, Josh, I thought we were talking about Christian community. Like, what on earth does this have to do with Christian community? Well, in a second, I'm just going to say everything. You know, this story, of course, is more generally about the provision, the generous gift of God. But one aspect of God's provision for your life and mine is the Christian community. And so I want to just invite you to think about the provision of Christian community through the frame of manna. And I want to make three similar observations. Three observations. First observation is this. Number one, church people are strange. Can I get a witness? Now, easy. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that church people are a bunch of weirdos that were idiosyncratic, socially awkward, you know, or um, there are those people that are overly spiritual in kind of a weird, you know, manipulative sort of way. I mean, there's no shortage of that. I'm not saying that. Of course, within the church, as well as within any community of humans, you're going to find idiosyncratic, socially awkward people. We, we find them aplenty, you know, in Christian communities and in life. And some of our, sometimes we look in the mirror and see ourselves in that light. Amen? I don't mean that. Uh, of course, the, the church does have strange, you know, kind of weird people. But, but the church, and in, in Christian community, I have met, some of the most fierce and beautiful and courageous and compelling humans I have ever met in my life. Jesus transforms people's life in beautiful ways, and I have met really incredible people in the church. I, I don't mean to say, by, by talking about church people as being strange, that they're simply weird. I, I'm saying this. Church people are strange because they are other than you. Or, or let me put it like this. God, by God's design, the church is a community of difference. Uh, by God's design, he is drawing together a diverse array of people. You know, when the gospel broke out in the first century and the good news about the crucified and risen Jesus began to spread throughout the Roman Empire, something emerged in the world that up until that point in, in human history, the world had never seen. And you know what emerged? a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-lingual, multi-cultural community of people. Uh, from different socioeconomic statuses, uh, men, women, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, brought together in one family of, of, of full dignity and equality of chil as children of God. God was forming a new humanity around Jesus. And, and Paul alludes to this in um, Galatians. He puts it like this. He says, in the church, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And this kind of thing that emerged in the world is beautiful and it's complicated. And it was complicated in the first century. You know, sometimes we, we think, you know, well, you know, we just need to get back to the first century church, you know, and be like the early church. Listen, the early church 
was problematic just like our churches are. You know, Paul writes to the church in Corinth and they're fighting over celebrity pastors. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. Well, I'm of Jesus. You know, all the spiritual ones, they're of Jesus, you know. And they're fighting and they're getting in arguments. He, he writes to the church in Rome because they're divided over uh, the diet they're eating. Some are, are Jewish people that are very strict on Jewish kosher laws. And then you've got these freshly converted pagan Gentiles and they're following Jesus. They're like, I love bacon, you know, and they're, it's creating problems. And of course, within those communities, there were people from very strictly observant religious backgrounds, and they knew all the moral rules and the codes and the lingo, and then there were these people coming in, and they just had none of that background, and then, of course, you had masters, and then you had slaves, and sometimes slaves would maybe even be trained to be a pastor in a local community because those were the spiritual gifts, now leading the person who was, you know, in their day job, their, their boss, as it were, and, and it created complications, and so, you, you know, this kind of community of difference is complicated. You know, in, in church planning, it's so complicated that uh, in church planners' manuals, they have something called the homogeneous principle, which is simply this. If you want to grow a church, you need to start with a homogeneous place because people are most likely to be attracted to people like themselves. But, of course, in God's design for the church, the church is not supposed to be a homogeneous place. Now, in principle, this is beautiful. In practice, it becomes difficult. You know the old saying, to live above with saints we love, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, that's another story, you know? <laughs> and you, you know that that's just our experience because I, I remember listening to um, a uh, interview with a, a therapist. He was talking about marriage and what is it that leads to most conflict in marriages? And he said this, he said, if I could boil, you know, conflict in marriage in one word, it would be the simple word difference. It is that your spouse is not you. Uh, they, they got different perspectives, different views. And listen, if I could boil down conflict within church into one word, it might be that word difference. We are part of a community of people who don't look like you, who don't vote like you, who don't dress like you, who come from a different background than you, who have a different lived experience than you, maybe a different socioeconomic reality than you, and that creates different perspectives on common issues. And so you walk into, you know, a, a small group Bible study, a home group, a, you, you break up into a breakout group at a women's Bible study or a men's group, and, and you talk about something, you just assume we're all going to think about the conflict in the Middle East through the same lens. But no, you've got people that think about it very different. Or we're all going to think about COVID through the same lens. And no, you had people who thought about it very differently or election seasons through very different lenses. And, and, and that creates difference and it creates problems and oftentimes division. But what I want you to see is simply this. This kind of difference is not cause for you to leave a Christian community it may well be the greatest gift of the Christian community. Because it is when you are around people who are different from you that you might actually find something drawn out of you and you might actually grow. It is, it, you know, it might be when you walk up to somebody and you're just like, man, who? Like, what this? How could anybody think like this? How could anybody be like this? And yet you, you go in and you start to understand their story and you start to see things differently. 
And so number one, church people are strange. They're different. They're other. They are man who, you know. Second, uh, they are not the food of the promised land. You know, C.S. Lewis, in, in, the, in his famous essay and sermon, The Weight of Glory, he said, look, he says, if we find in ourselves a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And you have longings in your soul that even your closest relationships in this world will not satisfy. You long for meaning and significance to be fully known and not misunderstood, but to be understood and to be loved. Like we long for that. We need that. We were made, says C.S. Lewis, for another world. And listen, when God's new creation finally breaks in, when Jesus returns, when the curtain is pulled back and Jesus is revealed as the world's true king and all things are made resurrection new, in that new world, our longing for deep and intimate connection and meaning and wholeness, our longing to be fully seen and loved and known and to know others and to cut past all the misunderstandings and the hurts and the disappointments and to be fully and completely and infinitely loved that will be met finally and completely. But that is then, and this is now. In the now, in the relationships we experience right now, we are not in promised land relationships. The people around you, and I'll just say, you're new to this church, this is not a promised land church. Sometimes you walk into a space and if it is markedly different in a more positive way than the church you were at before, you tend to immediately start to idealize it. And the people I was always, you know, I remember a friend of mine said, he says, the people I'm most suspicious of, a pastor friend of mine said this, when they visit the church is after their first Sunday, they walk up and they're just like, this is the greatest church I have ever been to. You're the best pastor I've ever seen. And uh, you're so much better than my old church. And we're just like, give them three weeks. (laughs) But of course, you know, you stick around in the church for any period of time and disappointment and disorientation, it can just set in because things are not the way they ought to be. And some of you are like, you know, I wish things were better here. I do too. I I wish, you know, this, I wish the pastor would get better. I do too, you know, and, um, but, but listen, we're all on a journey of growth. I wish the congregation would be, you know, uh, more engaging and more welcoming and more people would invite me in and, and know my name. And when I'm sick, they would know I was sick and they'd come visit me or they'd call in and like, you should want all of that. That's a legit good longing. And of course, you can have pockets of knowing that in the local church. And I think a lot of us in our relationships in the church have found so much gift. And God has cared for us through our brothers and sisters. And he's brought us meals when we're sick. And he's written us cards when we're down all through the hands and feet of the church around us. We've known that. But listen, it doesn't take being around a church for very long to also be disappointed because you are not experiencing what you think you ought to be experiencing. Am I alone? And it's because 
The provision of God around you is not promised land food. Uh, the, the, the provision of God in this age as we're on our journey to the promised land is a community of broken people who are on a journey like you, a people of hurt who have been hurt, who oftentimes hurt out of the hurts they've experienced. And people who have tweaked perspectives because of their own kind of like upbringing and, and, what, and, and God works with us. Can't we work with each other? God has patience with us. Can't we have patience with each other? And we are not promised land food. I'm not promised land food. You know, one of the most important things I've ever read about engagement with the local church, I've read it to you multiple times, and some of you have heard it, some of you haven't. I'm going to read it again because it's so good. But it comes from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's uh, brilliant book on community called Life Together. Bonhoeffer, uh, he's going to write in predominantly male language because he's writing to an all-male seminary. Like, that's his, his experience. He started an underground seminary under the Third Reich, under the Nazis, uh, to train pastors. And they lived together in community. And because you think about what kind of person dissents from the Nazi church and has the chutzpah to go to an underground church in the, under threat of their own life and be trained as a pastor to go start an underground movement of churches, these are going to be idealistic, courageous, strong leaders. And some of you, you're some of the best leaders that we have, and you are idealistic, and I love that. I'm idealistic. And so you, you, you have strong, like, I expect a church should be like this. And, and so he said this. He said, um, Oftentimes, he says, what I experience about these idealistic people that come to the church is they start to want more from the church than God has designed that they get from the church. He puts it like this. One who wants more than what Christ has established. Remember, what Christ has established is a community of broken people who are on a journey of becoming saints, as it were. One who wants more than what Christ has established does not want Christian brotherhood. He is looking instead for some extraordinary social experience which he has not found elsewhere. He is bringing muddled and impure desires into Christian brotherhood. And then he goes on and he says this, every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. Because here, here's the reason why he says this. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. In other words, your idealism demanding that the church be this rather than this paltry thing that you're experiencing can actually cause you to become a hindrance to the community that exists. So we're in a process. We are not promised land food. So, so what are we seeing from, about God's provision of Christian community from this passage? Number one, church people are strange. Number two, church people are not promised land food. But finally, let, let's note this. They will sustain you in the wilderness. The Christian community, your brothers and sisters are enough to sustain you on your journey in the wilderness. 
They will not satisfy your every longing. They will disappoint you sometimes, confuse you or frustrate you or misunderstand you or misname you. Uh, They will not bring you by themselves into the promised land. Only Jesus can do that. But your brothers and sisters are God's provision for you and I. God has given us the church to sustain us in the wilderness. Hebrews 10.25 puts it like this. The author says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. In other words, God has given you one another to be agents spurring you on to love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, let me be clear. If you find yourself in a spiritually abusive or heretical or utterly dysfunctional Christian community, I'm not saying that you should just stick it out and stay there. You should leave. But I am saying this. I I am trying to tell you that when you are frustrated or disappointed, make sure you look down. Make sure you are not forever staring up into the sky at your wish dream of what could or ought to be, wondering and asking God when he is ever gonna feed you because so often the food is all around. And they may not have been what you were looking for, But don't forget to look on the ground. The stuff on the ground is the very gift of God. Now, I want to just, as we close, invite you to ask this question. As we move into this new year, what step is God calling you to take as it relates to engagement within the Christian community. And I want to suggest three potential steps. Number one, it might be for you this year that God is calling you, he's inviting you to take a deeper step into relationships within this community, maybe by joining one of the groups. We're launching groups today. You're going to hear about it this week and next week and the week after that. And listen, we haven't designed groups because we, you know, your church staff needs busy work to make sure that we can justify, you know, our jobs. Like, these are vehicles. They're structures that we try to build. They're imperfect, be sure. Like, you will be disappointed in groups. You always are, you know. I don't want to over-promise and under-deliver. Like, but when you take a step, and you say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a part of women's Bible study, I'm going to go to celebrate recovery, I'm going to join mops, I'm going to join one of the men's groups, or whatever, and, and you just open yourself up and you say, I'm going to get into the habitual rhythm of meeting together with regular people as Hebrews 10.25 commands me to do as a follower of Jesus, and I'm going to seek to open my mouth and, and open my ears and, and give and receive you might find yourself nourished in ways that you are not currently being nourished. And so for some of you, your next step is you need to take a a next step into deeper community by joining a group. Would you consider doing that? Second, maybe for some of you, uh, you know, maybe you've kind of been going to groups or you've been coming around here for a while. Maybe for you, your next step is to take a deeper step into commitment 
to the local church. And on January 21st and 28th, we are holding a membership seminar. And we're going to let you look under the hood of our church and see how we operate, understand our theology, our values, our structure, our governance, and all of that stuff. And again, church membership, it's not like, it's not like you know, sometimes people are like, well, what's, what's the benefit? You know, like when I'm a member at Costco, you know, I get certain benefits like... Listen, among other things, one thing church membership is, it is a protest against the individualistic, consumer-oriented mindset that so many American Christians have to the church, that treat the church like simply a vendor of religious goods and services, that your job as a critic and a judge to determine. No, we are called to commit ourselves to one another, One of the most commonly used phrases in Pauline letters is one another. We are called into life together. And one of the ways in which you make that public, intentional, concrete, and specific is by joining a church. And so if you've not joined this local church, I'd encourage you, if you're a regular attender here, or you just want to learn more about what that whole thing is like, come to our membership class on January 21st and 22nd. Number three, some of you are like, well, I... I, check, you know? I go to women's Bible study. I'm a member of the church. Listen, maybe the step that God is inviting you to take in this next year is to take a step into greater levels of vulnerability. Connection happens when we are vulnerable with one another. When we open up our heart and our life and our weaknesses and our struggles and you, you share that with somebody else and you find them saying, what? You too? And all of a sudden, connection happens. Watching Paul and Georgia share their story about Celebrate Recovery, I guarantee you that if you go to Celebrate Recovery and you open up about some habit or hang up or whatever that, that you've, got, you've got some anger stuff going on or control issues going on, and all of a sudden you're like, wow, I'm in a community of people that I'm not alone. And connection happens. Connection happens when you open up your life and you share your struggles. Maybe what God is calling you to do in this next year is to open up about that thing in your life that you maybe are afraid to share about. Open up to another brother or sister or maybe to a small group and allow them to be a part of your journey. And so what is the next step that God is calling you to take?